This call and your telephone number will be monitored and recorded. To accept this call, say or dial 5 now. Thank you for using Global Tell Link. My name is Richard Morellis and I want to welcome you to the Prison Post. This is your podcast for conversations surrounding the need to reform prisons from the perspective of formerly incarcerated people, community members, and leaders in the restorative justice movement. The Prison Post will feature an episode every Wednesday with people who are in the fight to restore lives and heal communities. Today our guest is calling from a California prison, the Correctional Training Facility in Soledad, California, also known as Soledad. In this episode, Reginald Glover will share his own story and how his experience led to his ultimate transformation. Reginald was sentenced to 25 years to life. His earliest possible parole date is in 2021. He is 46 years old. He is a Senate Bill 261 youth offender, meaning that the hallmarks of his youth will be taken into consideration when he goes before the Board of Prison Hearings. Reginald's transformation began after being asked a question by his wife that he couldn't answer. I'll let him share the rest of that story. I'm grateful that you're willing to share your story with us. Welcome to the Prison Post, Reginald. Good morning. Good morning. Thank you for having me. For sure. I'm glad. I'm glad you're here. I remember being there with you. Uh, we didn't get to, to to spend as much time as possible, but I hear that you're uh, doing amazing things. I'm really proud of you. I'm really uh, grateful that you're going to get to be going to board really soon, and love that you're here with us to share your story. Thank you very much, man. I'm honored to be here and part of this. I believe that your story is going to have a, a great impact on our listeners. And as I share with you, our audience is, uh, is made up of those who are loved ones of the incarcerated. You know, they have a loved one in there, whether it be a brother or a son, uh, a mother, a father, a sister, a cousin. And, and they're in their corner and they're rooting for them and they're wanting for them to come home and never to go back again. And so instead of um, a lot of these family members listening to the radio on the way to the prison visits or listening to, you know, the same old show. Our, our, our podcast is an opportunity for them to hear stories like yours that'll bring them hope and encouragement to share with their loved ones that if you could change your life, then their loved one can as well. So I'm really, I'm really grateful that you're here to share your story. Thank you very much. Um, How long have you been incarcerated now? Going on 28 years. Uh, matter of fact, I said going on 28 years. It's been 28 years as of January 23rd of this year. It made January 28 years. Which so in a couple days. Six days ago. Yeah. Six days ago. 28 years. You know, um, yes, what does it feel like to be incarcerated that long? Uh, it's been a long journey. But as you said earlier, once your mind is free, then you're free to visualize other things and not just these walls inside. But the journey's been a, um, a rough one for not just me, but as well as my family, because as I'm doing this time, they're doing it with me. So um, just been ups and downs through this journey for 18-year-old kid, 19-year-old when I was sentenced, 18-year-old when I came to jail. And now I'm 46, as you said at the beginning of the show, which I'll be 47 in a couple of weeks. So that's 28 years of, of, of ups and downs, man. Ups and downs. Good times, bad times, confusing times, sad times. Um, you name it. I've experienced it emotionally, some physically. So the other day I, I, I shared with someone that I needed to get free in there before I could ever be free out here. Uh, I was going to say that holds true for most of us because we won't understand the freedom out there if we don't come out free. If we're still locked in that box in our mind, then how can we understand freedom? Because we're still locked in. So I understand what you mean by that. And what about today? How are you doing today? How are you feeling today? Today, and it's a beautiful day. It's a beautiful day. There's so much sadness in the world. And I was blessed to wake up above ground. You know, I woke up, put put feet on the ground, and started my day with a little meditation. So uh, it's a little cold out here, but uh, other than that, I'm doing good, man. I'm doing good. Would you would you be willing to give a description of like 
You said it's a little cold out there. Describe what you see right now for the listener. You're out, you're out there, uh, obviously, on a prison yard in Soledad. What do you see? What's the weather like? Well, it's a little breezy. Um, you have recreation going on out here. You have people using the phone, people conversing, walking around, associating with each other in their fractions, as I would say, you know. Um, but, again, like I said, the weather is a little breezy up here because we're by the water. Um, and I did not come out prepared. <laughs> I thought I was prepared, but I wasn't prepared for this kind of weather. But, you know, you see people exercising and, like I say, just mingling everyday life in prison, as they would say. Uh, for me, I for me, I spent um, 18 years and two months in Soledad. I lived there longer than I lived anywhere else my whole life. And I remember that view of the mountain beyond the gates. And uh, yes. having that same sight year after year, it never looked the same because of the weather, because of the clouds, because of the sun. It was the same view, but somehow the, the master artist in the sky painted a different picture every day, but I still remember that mountain. What's it looking like today? It's a little clear with a little clouds above it but more clear than clouds. But I know exactly what you're talking about. You sit out here and you look at the trail. Some days you can see it, some days you can't. You know, the fall comes in. Fog's been here for the last week or so. So some days you can see it in the morning, some days you can't. But as you said, it's a beautiful sight to see because for me, that's where you see freedom outside of here. That's, that's, that's that view of freedom, just open mountains. You know, just the openness. But like I said, it's it's a little clouds over, but it's more clear than cloudy. Yeah, for sure. And I remember some days it being so cloudy that you could not see the mountain. You couldn't see it because they completely uh, enveloped it. And if you only went there for the first time, you wouldn't know that a, a mountain was even there. And I like how you related yeah. it to freedom because um, it's like that, man. Freedom is here. And at one time, I, I'm, I'm sharing with you, Reginald, that I couldn't see it, but it's there. So I'm just encouraging you to come on, at, come on, keep doing what you're doing and come on over. Man, I'm getting there. I'm getting there. I remember a guy came back in to share with, with us in a, in a um, seminar. And one thing that stuck with me was he said, freedom is good. He said, freedom is good on all levels, you know, and and that's that's something that was big to me, just the, the smile on his face when he said, freedom is good, and I want that smile. <laughs> I want that smile. You're going to get it. Reginald, would you be willing to take us back? Take us back and you know, tell us how life started for you. When, where did you grow up? A little bit about maybe your family, your upbringing, uh, what that was like. Sure, I will. I grew up, I was born in San Francisco, California. Um, I was raised partially in San Francisco, partially in Oakland, California. For as my younger years, as my adolescent years, they were beautiful years. They were good years. Had a single parent home with just my mom. Spent some time with my dad, but not that much. But more with my grandfather, my dad's father. But most of my adolescence was with my mom. Like I said, everything that you can think of for a kid that he wanted, I got the attention for for a certain amount of time. I got all the attention that I wanted because I was the youngest kid. The love, it was there to a certain extent for what she knew how to give. But like I said, it was there were beautiful times. Growing up was wasn't too good in school, but I had an older brother. I said had because he got killed when I was 15, uh, going on 16. But um, just his support as a big brother helped me get through a lot of things in life as an adolescent, from the struggles that I had as far as educational-wise, just having him around. That was the best thing for me. Like, I can't even explain the feeling of what a big brother is if you ain't had one, because it's, it's something that's unexplainable. You have to feel it to know what it is. Like I said, I grew up in a single-parent home. My mom 
She worked most of our lives and grew up in a nice neighborhood as well, you know. Um, didn't really see poverty till later on. So in the younger years, I, like I said, I grew up with everything that you can think about. It was it was good times for me, um, from the football teams to the basketball teams to the baseball teams that I played on, from the birthday parties to the um, to the trips. We took a lot of trips as a youth um, from the Bay Area to Reno, Tahoe, things and those sorts. Like I said, mostly though for me, it was just the the, the brother, the brotherly love that I got. Like, I might not have been good in sports at the time, but I was able to play on all the teams because my brother was good. So if they wanted him to play, I got to play. So that was a plus for me, uh, <laughs> even mm-hmm. though I even though I wasn't that good. But it was like, I guess it was like for me, it was, it was a babysitting. It was babysitting. If she paid for him to play, if y'all wanted him to play, then y'all had to take me too. And I just enjoyed being there, though. But those were the... Those were the best times for me, just being in that atmosphere and enjoying the the childhood of a child with no worries. I had no worries, you know. Everything was there for me, you know, the family support and everything. What about, like, an experience that um, you mentioned the loss of your brother, you know, and you were 15. How did that experience or other experiences negatively shape you well my brothers came a little later but before then it was just the lifestyle like i said early on i told you about the good times in the adolescent years and and, and my mom's work but my mom also had a side job which was um selling narcotics which was cocaine so in doing that i was around that as well And what age was that? Um, from probably, as far as I can remember, six on up to what? six on up to I was probably thirteen. Do you um, do you do you remember when you first uh, realized uh, what she was doing? Yes, it was an incident. I was in the room and I was playing in her room with my toys, and I went to grab a white substance and her reaction to me grabbing this white substance that was in the bag and to me it was just a prop for my toy. I think it was G.I. Joe or Transformer or something I was playing with at the time. But there was her reaction to it let me know that it was something that I had done wrong. So eventually I, I started always paying attention to this white substance whenever I seen it. Whether it was eventually it became to where the selling part started to be a using you know so went from one seeing it in baggies to then seeing her using it snorting it or whatever it may have been one time we ran out of gas and we had to we were living in san francisco in the car ran out of gas so we had to get out the car and walk down to our house which was probably two blocks away but we had to walk over the hill and the hill is the little famous hill that they always show in the commercial when they show the the Victorian houses in San Francisco, that little park right there in front of the Victorian houses. We had to walk over that hill. And walking over that hill, guy comes out of the park and tries, well, commissions to try to rob my mom. So at that time, um, my mom, she struggled with him. And he hit my mom, and my mom fell. And when he hit my mom, I was about six or seven, I think, at that time, or eight, maybe. But he hit my mom, and I ran up behind him, and I just bit him on the back of his leg. And he hit me and knocked me backwards. But I guess at that time, as I get older and remember it a little more, at that time when he hit me, he gave my mom time to go in her boot and pull out her, her 38, and she shot the guy. When she shot the guy, she picked me up off the ground and dragged me, and we just ran down the hill to our house. Went inside the house. Basically, I took a bath that night. She put me to bed. But that time, she was separated from my stepdad. So she had called my stepdad and came over. And when I came out the room the next morning to go to school, 
she and she had some powder substance on the table and she was snorting it and she didn't see me until the last minute. So she instantly when she seen me, she pushed to the side as if I couldn't see it and told me to go in the bathroom and wash my face and get ready for school. So that was one of the first times really that from from the substance of seeing it in the baggie to the extent of of her usage of it and the tragedy of the gun and everything. And um, the violence. And how did that impact you leading into your own path down committing crimes or things like that? Well, for me, it was always, like I say, even after the incident, the second thing I seen was the next time I seen her use the gun, she got angry at my stepdad in a situation because he wouldn't let us in his house use the bathroom. So I believe he had another acquaintance, female acquaintance in the house. So my mom got mad, took us all the way home where I could have used the bathroom at that time, but instead went in the house, got the same gun, came out of the house, got back in the car with us, took us back over there. When the bus asked my stepdaddy could have come in and use the restroom, and he was like, no, still. So my mom took a fence and shot out the front window of his house, his apartment building, and he got back in the car and drove off. So that was the next time I seen this gun, this same gun used in a violent situation. So for me, like I said, the, the, the drugs, the guns and stuff, it's part of my life since I was probably in the second grade, the second grade, and probably before that, but as far as I can remember, it was the second grade. Like I said, my as I got older, my mom, like I said, started using. So one incident, my mom got into it with my brother um, about my brother paying the phone bill because she gave him money to go pay and he didn't pay it on time. So she felt that he took her money and done something else with it, even though the bill was paid. So she got mad and put my brother out the house. And during that time, she put him out. He started staying with my grandmother. Maybe a year later, he got killed staying with my grandmother. So those experiences were big parts of my I guess you could say changed into the criminal lifestyle because at that time, I think the incident broke me when my mom put my brother out and he got killed. I don't mean like far as broke, but just broke something in me to where my relationship with my mom wasn't the same because I always was a mom, mama's boy. But at that time, I, I just didn't really want no parts of my mom because I felt like she wasn't taking the responsibility at the time of her, her part in my brother getting killed. So it was more so in a sense that I I started acting out towards my mom, everyone that, that, that cared for me in whatever way they cared for me in. So it led me doing the same thing that my mom did. My brother, when he got killed, he was dealing drugs as well. So it led to me doing the same thing, like it was just a pattern. Uh, 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 I guess you could say it was a turn to thing that we did when, when, when times was hard. We knew to hustle that was a way to get money, was selling drugs. And eventually I started doing the same after my brother got killed, which was about 15 or 16. I had my first kid on the way at the time and didn't realize I had a second child as well on the way. But I only knew about one at that time. So... I always said to myself, told myself that I wouldn't be like my dad. I wouldn't be in my, I would not not be in my kid's life. I would not provide for my kid. So I, these are the things I was telling myself at the time. So I went to selling drugs to provide. And between that, it only led me down a deeper path of, of, of uh, crime. You know, when it didn't. When, when the drug money wasn't fast enough, it turned to robbing drug dealers. Um, then that turned into violence. You know, when people came back for retaliation about being robbed, that turned into violence and shootouts and so forth. And all that time, I was telling myself that I was trying to provide for my kid, which I really wasn't. I was um, trying to live up to something that I had created um, as far as that person that I had became. And I was just trying to keep that person alive because that person didn't deal with the pain that I was going through at the time. 
So as the question you asked as far as when did I really, how did that, seeing my mom and those things affect me, it just led me down that path, and it got worse. If you could think back to your idea of the future back then, did you ever think that you would get out of that lifestyle, or did you have any hopes and dreams for the future? No. As far as dreams and a vision, I didn't, I didn't even know what that meant. So there was no way that I can have it. You know, my dream at that time was just being what I was, which was a criminal, a drug dealer. I didn't think, never worked a day in my life, and I came to prison for as a for as a legal job. I've never even tried to get a legal job. So again, like I said, it was just the dreams part that you asked that I have. I didn't have no vision. I, I vision. I did. Let me change. I did have a vision. I had a vision that I wouldn't live to see twenty three. You know, how do you see, looking back now, how old are you today? 40, I'll be 47 in a couple of weeks. Being nearly 47 years old, 28 years to think about this. And looking back, uh, I'm sure you had a lot, a lot of time to do insight work and to look back and how do you see that your criminality progressed over time and your thinking um, and your beliefs and values culminating with committing a crime to receive a life sentence. Okay, now back on to my brother getting killed. As I told you early on in the story, when I was younger, my brother was a protector of me. So he always guided me. He always was there for me when I needed it. So once his life was taken, my criminality had progressed because I, I, I stopped feeling in so many ways, like things that, that matter didn't matter no more to me. And because of that, people that I thought were friends took advantage of those feelings and those, those lack of those lack of feelings rather. So as I said, as far as up to my crime, I had a co-defendant. He's deceased um, now. He was murdered. He had got out and he was murdered in 2019. Yeah, he was murdered early 2019. Gunned down um, in a violent murder. Gunned down in the same projects that we grew up in. So I said that to say that he was a little a couple years older than so he was like a big brother figure to me after I lost my brother. So from sixteen on I was trying to be everything that he wanted me to be, you know, and in doing so crime wasn't even uh a thought in my mind for us doing it. You know, if it was gonna if I was gonna be okay in his eyes, then I was willing to do it. I was willing to commit the crime because I that's how bad I, I I was looking for that that figure in my life again. You know, that void that was gone. I was willing to substitute it with, with someone who only wanted things from me that would benefit them. So in saying that we eventually, like I say, we sold drugs, then we eventually started robbing other drug dealers and robbing drug houses, whatever we felt like there was money, enough money. And I don't glorify it or any of that in that sense, but I mean, money from up to the most we ever took out of a house was probably $100,000. Um, and that only fueled the criminality because we were getting the money fast and we were spending it fast. So it only made us even want to get it more. And by then, I was into it. You know, rather he started me that down that path. By then, the choices became mine because of I became addicted to that lifestyle as far as the, the fast money, the fast cars, and everything that came with it. Um, it was just a tip of something that... I experienced when I was younger, cause with my mom, you know, the, the way the money came and the things that I had got, like I said, I had every toy that you can think of and so forth. So it was like, with, with, with my co-defendant, it ignited. So it ignited something that inside of me that lay dormant for a long time, you know? So I continued and continued until I murdered a person took a life in the commission of a robbery. That's how I got the 25 to life sentence. 
I took a life in the in the commission of a robbery, chasing chasing things that didn't even have no real value or any of that far as today that I know. It was just it wasn't really even at some point it wasn't even about the money. It just became about just because we could do it. Because it was like you were going through the money so you really didn't care about that. It was just doing it to do it at a certain amount of time. And at the the last one where I took a life, it wasn't even money really involved in that sense. It was just it was an opportunity to just take something from someone. And, and in doing so, I took a life. And I live with that every day and will live with that for the rest of my life. And so that's, that's one of the things that gets me through this journey as well, is knowing that I've done that and knowing that the pain that I caused in doing, in doing so. Each day I, I, I'm on this journey, I try to keep that in the forefront of my mind. You know, so like I said, it wasn't just a life. It was it wasn't a life I took. I took a something from a lot of people. I took children, took a child from their mother, I took a uncle or auntie from from their nieces and nephews, sisters and brothers. I took a um, relative, a niece from their uncle or auntie. So like I said these are the things that I realized today that I didn't then because of my reckless and irrational thinking, all just chasing something that didn't even exist. What were your thoughts about what you did and what you caused back then, as opposed to what your thoughts are today about what you did and caused? Back then, the, the crazy thing is back then, even when you, you asked earlier about the sentence, when the judge sentenced me, um, I didn't feel nothing. I didn't feel nothing when he sentenced me to 25 to life. I just felt like I still was in this in this world that I created in my own mind, I guess you can say. So sort of like the 25 to life came with the territory. Yes, yes. So it was like even with the bus ride to San Quentin. It was like, uh, this is where I'm supposed to be. Like, this, this is, I remember when I was younger, the guys used to say in the lifestyle that I lived, they said either you would go to the penitentiary or you would die. So for me, it was either or. I didn't die. I came to the penitentiary. But knowing if I was on the streets, I would have died just because of those all the friends that I had at that time that were considered friends are deceased now. So it was, like I said, the saying that they said was the truth, whether I realized it or not then. But even getting off the bus in San Quentin, it was just like, okay, another day. Even when they yeah. called my name at, at, at 19, the Pelican Bay State Prison, 1992, worstest place you can ever go as a kid. Went there. First thing I did when I got off the bus there is I asked someone to give me a knife. You know, because I yeah. felt like what it, I felt like whatever was going to be whatever. You just had that, you still had that same mentality from the streets, like kill or be killed. And that's, that's, that was the mentality I continued to live with inside these walls for a long time, for a long time. That's why on a 25 to life sentence, I'm on my 28th year because I, I, I wasn't able to change that mentality until later on. I don't think it was because I seen people getting out that wasn't really the factor for me because I still didn't think I was going to get out, you know, because I didn't fathom getting out. I think it was in one day, like I said, I sat on my bunk and I realized how long I had been locked up and how long that I could be locked up and I actually cried. Like when it, when it, when it really, when it, when it realization hits you when you when you come out of that that bubble that you have put yourself in of lying to yourself pretty much and start facing the truth and anybody who tells you that they didn't you know that they ain't faced the truth because I said at the end of that bunk and I cried realizing all that I had took all that I had lost all that I had left behind it was just like wow 
you know, what were you thinking was the question that I asked myself. And that was the deepest question I've asked myself because that was another question that I couldn't answer until I started participating in self-help groups um, on this journey. Like, it just, everything, like I say, I brought everything from the streets to prison in the beginning on this journey and lived that way for a long time in here until I started asking myself the tough questions and not the easy questions. Man, that's profound, bro. So you, you've obviously uh, made a major shift in your life. Speak to that that moment when you get to Pelican Bay at 18 years old, 1992. Was that the year of the riot? It was a year. It was a year right before. And you were there for that? right before. Yes. And so yes. 18, 19 years old, and that's that famous riot that they show on TV at times that was so long that it was hard to stop. Um, yeah, very, it, very violent. It was a few. It was quite, it was a few. It was a few. Worst thing is worse. I think the worst, with the, my first experience realizing that it, I was really in a prison, like a riot broke out um, and they got the shooting out of the gun tower and they shot the Mini-14 above my head. And my first reaction was I dove under the bench. And it reminded me of the streets when you were shooting the shootout or whatever, and you got behind cover, behind the car or whatever. Me, I dove behind the bench. And I was like, wow, like, this is where I'm at. You know, but did that stop anything? No. No, it didn't stop anything at all. It just, like I said, it just made me realize that in so many forms, prison is like the streets. And for me, as well as when I go back to the 92, you know, now on our code, it says CDCR, which is California Department of Correction and Rehabilitation. Back then, it was just CDC, California Department of Correction. There was no rehabilitation inside of here. You know, you probably had maybe an AA meeting or two or a college class or two or whatever. But if you wasn't, if you didn't have the intellect and you didn't even attempt to try a college class and an AA class, if you were in denial, you just thought that was for the, the the real addicts. But until you realized that you were one, two, because you were drinking pruno out of a sock <laughs> that someone squeezed it out of, you know, you, these are when you realize these things. Like you say, you're not an addict or any addict, but you're drinking something that someone ciphered through a sock. These are the times when you question yourself, are you really not an alcoholic? No, Reginald, one of the things that I'm, I'm hearing before your transformation was is a one time when you said, uh, I stopped feeling. And when your, when your brother passed and kind of just immerse yourself in that life, anger and resentment. And I said, I stopped feeling. And then later on, when the judge sentenced you to 25 years to life, I didn't feel anything. And I was reading this book called The Criminal Personality. And uh, volume two. There's three volumes. The first, the first volume talks about patterns of thinking that people who are involved in criminal lifestyles uh, utilize. And the second volume talks about correcting those criminal thinking patterns. And so one of the, one of the number one traits of somebody who's living a criminal lifestyle is cutting off feeling, cutting off empathy. The inability or the unwillingness to look at life from the other look at life from someone else's perspective to put someone put yourself in the shoes of another person and not want to harm them not want to hurt them because you're looking at life through their perspective so in that sense we're living very selfish uh, egocentric self-centered lives but when that shift comes when that transformation comes generally shift comes when we turn feeling back on when we begin to empathize again when we make a choice to empathize and to feel what others are feeling and when we're doing that, we don't want to hurt or harm no one no more. In fact, we don't want to put self first no more. We want to put others first. So that's really what we're going after today is that transformation for you. And you talked about that. How come it was important for you to change? You know, you shared that I took my I took the streets into the prison and continued that lifestyle. How many years until you made a new decision? And describe what that new decision and why that was important for you to transform. 
Okay, well, um, as they teach you in here, there's many stages to change. So I was in the first stage for a long time. I, I didn't know how. You know, I felt it, but I didn't know how. So for me, it took me a few years to get to that point. I'm not even talking about the times when I wasn't feeling. I'm talking about when I when I started thinking about the change. I'm in my 28th year, so I'm going to say that the, it started in my 21st year. It was one day, like I said, I was I was talking to my wife, and she asked me a question, and she asked me, when was the last time I got in trouble for myself, for my actions? And I could not answer that question because it was everything I ever done, it was for others. You know, it was to please others, whatever it may have been. So when I couldn't answer that question, I felt less of a man at that time. And it made me see that the path I was on wasn't the path that I should be on. You know, like I said, I fought and I fought early on to stay in that, that, that negative mind state. I told, I told myself that this was where I belonged, you know, until someone showed you that you didn't belong there. That's another thing when you ask about the empathy. You learn empathy through others by them showing it to you, the compassion that they show you the caring that they show you. It teaches you to care for others. So for me, like I said, just the, the love of my family as well. You know, my little sisters been on this journey with me. I lost my dad on this journey, but after he passed, my little sisters stepped in and they've been with me and just their belief in me. Even when I was lying, even when I was lying, they believed in me because they loved me, you know. So that that change came for me when I started loving myself. Their love for me helped me learn to love myself because a, lot of, a long time I didn't feel like I was worthy of love because of the things I'd done in, in my criminality. So I didn't feel I was. So I continued, I continued, I continued to accept love and that helped me love myself and then begin to love others. It helped me begin to see things and put others first, as you said earlier. I think I read that book, if I'm not mistaken, that you just mentioned. There, I believe they went back into a couple mental wards or prisons or something and interviewed people. But I believe this was the same book. Yes. And like you said, to understand the mind is, is when we start being able to utilize our mind in the right way. I, Like I said, I've, I've walked it. I've talked it, but I didn't walk it for a long time. But now I walk it, and that's because of others. Like, even with the, the outside um, interaction that do these groups, people come in and, and they treat you as human beings when you went through a long journey of, a long process in this, on this journey of not being treated like one. And not because it was you was, that you wasn't one, it was just the way they were trained to treat you. So being able to be treated like one again, it opens your eyes up to things that you thought you would never see again. So like you said, just the feeling and understanding of others, putting them first before you put yourself first, hearing them instead of hearing you. So like I said, these are the things that came along on this journey, having compassion for another human being in their circumstances. When one at one point in time all you understood was was violence, but seeing violence you just overlooked it. But now when you look at it, you, you you're saddened by it, you're affected by it, in a in a way that you wasn't affected by it for a long time in your life. Even as a kid, you got sad and went to funerals. But when I went to the other side of life and, and the criminality side, like I said, I stopped feeling those things. I stopped feeling those feelings. I just shut them off because, like you said, once we get in there, we don't want to feel we don't want to feel the things that we were doing. Like we 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 can choose when we use our morals in those situations as well. And those were the things that I I, I learned as well on this journey, especially far as the the humility. Like you have to be humble to walk this walk. You have to. You have to be, you have to have humility to see other people on this walk.
you know, um, because like I said, 28 years has been a long walk for me. For sure. And I will walk, I will walk, and I will walk until I walk out of here. And that's all because of the self-help groups. You asked me earlier about some of them that helped me. The first one I ever went to was AVP, Alternative to Violence. And just the, the things that they taught me in there for just a different perspective of uh, the way you see things. I believe the next one I went to was I got here um, because where I was, it wasn't, it was just AVP. But when I got here and all the self-help groups they had here and I never experienced nothing like it. I went through the whole LTOP program from substance abuse to denial management. But the most powerful ones in that, in that one was victim's impact. Like to understand the things that you've done and the pain you caused. Speaking of that, in a victim's awareness seminar for victim's impact, I had a moment to where I'm listening to Cheryl World, Cheryl World speak about her loss. And as I'm looking at her, I'm understanding my mom's pain, something I never understood. You know, I'm looking at her and I'm listening to her and all that she went through when she lost her child, as well as, you know, I'm looking at my mom. I used to think yeah. that when my brother got killed and my mom started using, I, I looked at mom as being weak and not understanding her pain. But once I was, once I heard that story and I'm looking at this lady tell this story, I heard my mom's pain for the first time in 20-something years. And I was, I was crushed that I was such an a-hole as a kid, you know, towards my mom. You know, I was judgmental and so forth when it came to that, instead of just understanding that pain. And, and understanding that everybody don't come out of pain the way you want them to come out of pain. People mm -hmm. deal with pain the best way they can deal with pain. It's not for you to judge no one else's pain, you know? Um, as well as for me, I took my pain out on the streets. So I'm pretty sure people judge me in that fashion, you know? So how can I judge someone else when I don't really even... I know how to deal with my own pain at the time, but again, that was that. After that, I called my mom the first chance I got and told her, like, Mom, I apologize because I understand some things that I didn't then, you know. And I explained the situation of of the seminar, you know, the experience. And then another time in, in victims' impact, I was probably they they did it. They had two guest speakers come speak to us, 12 of us in a classroom, and I probably was five feet away from a mother whose child was murdered. And I'm sitting there watching her shake as she's talking. It's her first time in prison to tell her story. And I'm sitting there watching her shake. And all I'm feeling like is, is, is even though I'm doing this change, I just still feel like a piece of shit because I call some people that pain that same type of pain that I'm sitting in front of looking at. And, and at that time, all I can do was tell her, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. You know, just, just for her loss, but for all that I contributed into the world for us, the life that I took. It was just, like I said, that, that was one of the most powerful experiences I went through for as um, the self-help. That was just one. But that was one that helped me make that full turn as well in my life. Just knowing that I didn't want to cause that pain ever again to anyone, no matter what the circumstances are. I could never yeah. do that. So, and, it, and it, helped, it opened my eyes to me putting that whole 100% in effort into what I needed to do, not to do that again, not to commit those crimes. Rather, it was going up to, to, to sign up to talk to the psychiatrist to get a better understanding of, of insight of why I committed the crime, just things that I was unwilling to do. But all that came from being here, like the groups that were started here. I remember a story when I was on this yard earlier. You asked me about this yard and what I seen when I was talking to you. I remember it was a story that I tell Jay and them all the time. I was sitting at a table with a friend of mine and you guys had just went to the store and you guys were over there eating ice creams and stuff. 
you, Jay, Ted, and Florida Fuel, y'all. Yeah. And my friend that I was sitting at the table with, he was like, look at them over there. And they think they're better than us. So I looked at him and I asked him, I said, and what gives you that impression? Because they're eating ice creams and enjoying themselves. He was like, nah, he couldn't answer the question, really. So I just broke it down to him. Well, I'm going to be honest with you. I'm trying to get in that circle. I want to eat ice creams with them guys. <laughs> you know, because I, I I understood the unity that was there, the support that was there for each other. Yeah, so that was a, I tell, a love and community. I tell, so. I tell Jay all the time, I made it in that circle. <laughs> I told him <laughs> I would and I did. <laughs> you're in, brother, you're in. That's where I wanted to be. Thank you for generously sharing. We'll come back, man, and I want to speak to what it means to be to take responsibility, what it means to be remorseful. And uh, this call and your telephone number will be monitored and recorded. Some of the ways you're giving back today. Yeah, I just want to thank you for being so generous with your story, for sharing openly and honestly. And just want to wrap the fire off, maybe do a little lightning round and, and ask some questions and just hear your thoughts. Do you believe that someone needs to change their thinking before they can change their behavior? Uh, no, I think you can change your behavior before you change your thinking. Well, I believe this is this is what I what I mean by that is that behavior is learned. Thinking is more of a talk. You know, you 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 have the right to think and and view things the way you want. Behavior is learned. So I think that if you're it, you can change your learned behavior, it's up to you to change it. Awesome. Now, what when's your actual board date? They have me scheduled for June 2021. But because of the milestones and the rack hours, I could be going uh, sooner than that. Pretty sure I will be. Not could be. I'm pretty sure I will be going sooner than that. I just don't know when yet. And what number of hearing will this be for you? My second. Oh, only a second hearing? Yes. My first hearing, um, I went 2014. Um, I didn't file any paperwork for the 1045s, any of that because I wanted to complete what they asked me to complete for is you felt I needed seven years. I'm in agreement with you that I needed that whole seven years to complete this, my change, my journey. You know, I didn't want to feel like I was shortchanging anyone, you know, not in myself. So I want to get the full potential and everything out of it. Could I file a 1045 and went back earlier? Yes, I could have. But I want to make sure that when I step in front of them again, I did everything they asked me to do plus some. Um, just to uh -huh. show them that I, I was serious about what I said I would do at that last board hearing. So largely these interviews are about transformation. And I understand exactly what you're sharing right now. But I, I just want to make it really clear with our with our listeners what exactly that you're sharing right now. So is it that you're sharing that you went to your first parole board nearly seven years ago and they gave you, because of your first 21 years, the way you lived your life in there, a seven-year denial? And yes. even though the law says that after, after 18 months, you can uh, start working on things that they ask you to work on and put in what's called a 1045, which will allow you to get back to the board uh, early, sometimes 14 to 18 months, that you did not put one of those in, but decided to make those changes over the last seven years and wait the full seven years to go back a second time. Yes, because at the, at the, for at my initial hearing, some of the things that they said to me, I was those things. Give you an example. The commissioner called me a coward. Sure. I didn't consider myself a coward at that hearing. But as I went back and I sat down my bunk, I thought about it. I was everything he said I was. I was a coward in so many ways. Why? Because I continued the same type of lifestyle in prison. I didn't try to change nothing. I didn't try to fix anything that was wrong with me. I just continued to live the way that I lived on the streets in prison and hoped that I didn't get caught for it. You know, so when I looked at it in, in that aspect as being a coward, I was 100% that coward that he called me, you know. So I wanted to make sure when I stepped back in front of him that he would not call me that again because I was not that, you know. I took on his wording and I understood what he meant and I changed the things that needed to be changed as well as the pain in the family's eyes when they spoke, when they talked about what I did, the crime that I committed, the pain that I caused them, 
there was no way in the world that I would go back in front of them. Not a completely changed man. I didn't care how much time I had to do for my time because it wasn't about me anymore. It was about everyone that I hurt. You know, that's where that empathy comes in. When you put yourself in someone else's shoes, I have kids. So how would I feel if that was my child? And, and and I'm sitting there and I'm telling that same story that they're telling of how much pain I caused them. If someone was telling me that story, you know, so I once completely go back in there and say that I am not that man that you talked about seven years ago. I am not that man that committed that crime 28, 29 years ago. I am not that man anymore. That's powerful, Reginald. And, um, you know, a lot of guys that I've been been in there, and I remember them just trying to get back to the board as soon as they could. And for you to share that story, it's one of the very rare times when I've heard that. You know, that's real transformation right there, where when I go back the next time, um, I'm going to spend these seven years uh, working on myself and making the, the change necessary and taking full responsibility and getting remorseful so that when I stand before that family again, I know that I'm a real changed man, and I'm no longer the coward that I that I used to be. That's a uh, that's some real man stuff right there. That's the manly man stuff, and it takes a uh, real thinking and behavior change to get to that point. So we're going to be wishing you all the best. And um, what are some of the ways that you've been preparing yourself over these seven years? I mean, you talked about alternatives to violence project the LTOP group, which is a long-term offender program that you did all of the classes. That's the CDCR sanction program for for long-term offenders and lifers and um, victims impact. So what are some other ways that you've prepared yourself? I took um, relapse prevention classes, which is in here as part of Avatar. Um, I continue to take more victims impact classes through BRAG, which is another self-help group. I do Palmer book reading with the Palmer High School students, which is getting a perspective from a different generation to understand things that's happening in the world today that, that I don't know nothing about. We do book reads with them weekly. I took Alpha L, Restorative Justice, which Alpha L is Leadership for Life, and Restorative Justice, which is dealing with the, both of those, L and L and Restorative Justice is dealing with the Hardinell students, they come back in and we present just a, just a different perspective for them from what they get out there. You know, just something, it's a, it's, a, it's a day of events, a day of change, a day of visions, different visions, getting different perspectives on life than you had before you came in. What else have I done? So many, I've done so many, it's hard to keep count of. I've done, yeah. um, I've done You've been busy. impact. I've done, I've done, I said victims in fact, I've done domestic violence because for the simple fact I'm married and I will be going out to a wife and I wanted to know the signs before I entered that environment, you know, because I owe that to her for the belief that she had in me. You know, I need to understand those things when they pop up and how to address those things. So I took the domestic violence, which I have none in my case or any of that, but I took it just for the fact that I love I love someone and I know that I will be living with someone, with the, with my wife, and I want to make sure that I understood all the signs that can come with that. What else did I take? Um, That's a good I amount right there, Cornerstone. Yeah, I took Cornerstone, taught to me by Jay Bryan and James Woolock and Ted Gray before he left. So I went through that through cornerstone training with them, which was another higher opener, understanding the filters and the paradigm and just all that. Uh, especially my favorite is um, the subject is talk, oh, competing conversations. Uh, <laughs> that is my yeah. favorite. You would probably have to explain that to them uh, when you're um, – doing whatever to edit or the introduction, explain to them what the um, competing conversations is because that was the best one because that's the one that gets us in the most trouble when we're not fully listening. But, yes, like I said, I've, I've been through multiple self-help groups. I facilitate most of the ones I went because, again, I wanted to give back. I, if something was given to me, and I wanted to give it back. I wanted to pay it forward. That's That's big for me. 
is giving back to the community, giving back to my community now as well as to my community when I get out of here. That's, that's what I'm about. For all the damage we've done in the world, it's only right to give back, you know? That's right. And, That's and right. to be known for something more than our criminal, our criminality. Um, that's, that's right. My main goal is to be known for more than that. Whether I leave a bench behind with my name on it, I know I left something behind other than my criminality. Exactly. Uh, the new legacy has begun. And I appreciate you yeah. uh, sharing that you facilitated groups because a lot of guys go in as participants, but they haven't reached the point yet where they're ready to give back and take on the training and, and learn the work and live the work. And once someone's living the work, then they're ready to facilitate and begin learning to help others to where you are, to go from where, just like where you were to where you are today, to help them, help them go from where they are to where they want to be. Um, giving that changed life, that transformed life, getting prepared for freedom to come out to be returning citizens. And speaking of that, what are what are some of your goals once you're free? First is to continue this work, continue to give back, continue to go inside. Mostly me, I want to go back into the juvenile halls because that's where it starts. I wish that someone came in at that age to talk to me when I was going in there, to tell me, to speak to me about these experiences, to um, let me know that it ain't all as bad as I believe it is to be. Don't get me wrong. I, I will come back in prisons as well, but I think if we if we can get them at the at the youth, the teenage years, we'll be more productive because you're stopping it before it happens. You're putting a face with what they don't understand before it even happens for them. So that's one of my passions as well as um, I have a nonprofit that I'm going to start, which is called Hope, and Hope stands for helping other people eat. You know, I'm big on that the lack of food in our country today, as well as outside our country. We have plenty. Why not share? You know, so that's one of another one of my goals. And as well as giving them back the number that they gave me. Right. What does that mean to you? Giving them back the number? Yep. It means that I've done everything that I set out to do. Once I give it back, then I know that I stay on that path that I've I, I, started in here and will continue out there just to give it back says that I, I come to sometimes we look at accomplishments in, in so many different forms for me giving them back something that belongs to them is the biggest accomplishment there is this is Man. theirs it's not mine it's theirs that's so right that CDC to. never that CDC number was never meant to be yours yeah go on give it back bro yes sir well, what would you say because a lot of guys call call home and say, you know, I don't know if it's, I, I don't know if I can change in here. It's too dangerous. Is a, I know there's a lot of fear in prison. So what would you say to that mother, that father, that brother, that sister, that wife that has a loved one incarcerated and they're wondering if their loved one will change? Are wondering if their loved one will ever get a chance at freedom? Do you have any advice for them, encouragement for them, hope or inspiration? Yes, I do. That's a good question um, because that's that's one of the hardest things that we face in here is, is, is the change part. As you said, the violence that goes on in here. It's just having staying with the staying with the hope and the faith and continuing continuing to tell them that they can, let them know that they can, let them know that you believe in them that they can. Because one day those words sink in, regardless of how long it may take sometimes it's faster than others but just being there just being supportive just believing in them just letting them know that you care just letting them know that you support them but in, a, in positive ways not in negative ways because in negative ways it's just it, it'll, it's just a backlash there'll be a backlash after it you just want to support in positive ways and the positive changes that they're they're making um because it's possible you know we're, we're prime examples of those who are giving these interviews that you hear us on these phones talking. We're, we're prime example that change is possible because we were told a lot of times in our lives that we wouldn't change or that we couldn't change. 
you know, but we sit here today, changed men. And that's because of the support that we had from our families, from our moms, from our sisters, from our brothers, from our uncles, fathers, aunties, those people that loved us, that just believed in us and didn't give up on us. You know, that's one of the biggest things that happens in these prisons is people give up. You know, when their family give up on them, they give up. So if you believe in them and you're, you're willing to take this journey with them, because at the end of the day, you are taking this journey with them. They're not by themselves. You're doing it with them. It's just staying encouraging to them and, you know, letting them know sometimes they will mess up, but let them know that that's not the end of the world. Helping them figure out the next step from the mess up, you know, because sometimes they mess up and then they get that, well, you messed up. You're going to keep messing up. No, I'll give them that you messed up. Now, what are we going to do so we don't mess up again? You know, what group can you get in so this won't occur again? What position can you put yourself in so this won't occur again? It's just giving them that, that, that reassurance that they can do it because that's all that we want inside these walls is a little, a little reassurance because the negative is 90% and the positive is 10 So that reassurance from that outside world, it evens it out. You know, it evens it out. It makes it 50-50. You know, sometimes it makes it 60-50, I mean 60-40 in a positive form. But again, it's that encouragement. It's just that belief in, in, in your loved one that they can do it. And trust me, they can. Is there anything else that you'd like to share that you feel that we didn't cover that, that would uh, impact our listeners? Maybe something on your heart that you, that you want to share, you know, after 28 years in uh, your voice out here to those listening. 28 years in, I'm going to put it in perspective for you from my view of how I view prison and how I view me being successful outside of here. This is what I dealt with for 28 years. I woke up next to a toilet every morning for 28 years. So I would have no problem going to a shelter to sleep if I had to. I worked in CDC for an assignment for pennies, never made more than a dollar. So there's no way that I would not get up, go work a minimum wage job when I'm free to contribute to society. I've done that for 28 years, as well as I went to their child halls and ate the food that they give us, which is pretty much the equivalent of slop. It's not a disrespect to CDC. It's a disrespect to the food managers that, 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 that cut the money and short us on our food. But I said that to say, Again, not a disrespect to CDC. I said that to say that I would not have a problem getting up and going to a food bank to get some food if I need to. Before I said all that, before I go back to any terminal lifestyle. Why? Because I understand where I've been and where I want to go in life. With that said, I thank you for this interview, Rich. It was a pleasure. I appreciate you coming on the show to share your story. It was impactful. It was powerful. It was profound. I know that there's so much more that you could share about various experiences, but you shared a lot, bro. And I'm really grateful for you. You know, uh, you talked about Ted and Jay and us eating ice creams in there. We were that, 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 that circle, man, that island of transformation in there where white, black, brown, and any other color is welcome to sit, to fellowship, to the brotherhood, to the bond of men who are willing to transform their lives and men who are willing to use their time and their talents to make a difference for now and for all eternity. And we started that in there, not just to get out of prison, but to continue that work out here. And I know that Jason and Ted have shared that uh, your hopes of coming out here to parole into even to Sacramento where I'm at and, and be, and continuing the work. I just want you to know you always have a, a place for us, not only with ice cream, the work we do, not only do we want to continue to transform the culture of prison in there, but we want to shift the way think people think about prison in America. They think that it's impossible. Some, many, many believe that it's impossible for people to change, or that maybe that people don't deserve a second chance. But when they hear stories like yours, they see that even after 20 years in, a person can change and have a profound shift in their life to the point of waiting seven years on purpose to make sure that I'm truly a changed man before getting out of prison. I really, really appreciate your time, the heart. And just the way you just flowed in this interview to share your story. Thank you. 
appreciate the opportunity, man. Like I said at the beginning of the conversation, I was just going to give you my truth and whatever, I, you know, wherever that land it land, you know. <laughs> um, For sure, you did that. <laughs> again, with that, um, if there's anything else you need from me, um, I'm in. I, 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 I once, yeah, for sure. The other thing was is that I once heard that uh that you were a nephew or a relative of the actor Danny Glover. Is there? No, I am. That's my uncle. That's my father's brother. That's my uncle. Yeah. And yeah, um, I remember he went in there to Solidad a few times, and uh, I never, I never knew that he was a your relative at the time. But um, it sounds like he has a heart for prison reform and and uh, for giving back. He does. He's been doing it for a long time in his life. I'm talking about many years, since probably the seventies. He stands. He stands for prison reform. He's on boards. He's on he's on councils. He takes retreats with councils and stuff for prison reform. So that's a passion. That's another person that I will be working with once I get outside of here as well for us prison reform as well as with you guys. And hopefully we all can work together at some point. Make sure that people understand what it's like in here and, and that as you said change is possible it's not impossible it's possible once we can get them to understand that it's possible more than they believe that it's impossible then i think it will start viewing this place as, a, as different than what they view it definitely definitely hey man thank you for your time and for sharing it's been great again i appreciate the opportunity man and it's been a pleasure rich Thank you for listening to The Prison Post, a production of the Crop Organization. We'll be sharing more stories from the world of prison reform and restorative justice, so please join us. You can listen to The Prison Post on all major podcasting platforms. Subscribe to our videocast on YouTube and like us on Facebook at The Prison Post and at Creating Restorative Opportunities and Programs.